This is our second line-by-line, verse-by-verse study in the book of Revelation. Today, we will look at verses four through eight, and although it's only four, five verses, it is incredibly packed. I have a short title and a long title. My long title is The Revelation of Who Jesus Is and What He Has Done for Us. That's what we find here in this, this, this passage. The short title is Jesus, Even Greater Than You Thought. And that's really the amazing thing here is, is that no matter how great you thought Jesus was, he's even greater than that. And I got to say that this passage, as well as the one that we're going to be covering next week, which is the vision of Jesus, just wraps up the idea of his deity. There is no doubt if you believe the word of God and what the word of God says, then you will believe in the deity of Jesus by the time you are done with Revelation chapter one. Now, this text has four parts to it. For those of you who are note takers, I want to give these to you because it will help to really understand the text. It seems if you're just reading it, it can seem just kind of like this run on statement of really grand things, right? It's like a dessert buffet. You say, I want that. I want that. I want that. I want that. These are all wonderful things that are said here. But here's how it's laid out. First of all, there is a greeting or a blessing in verses in verse four and five a and in this we learn more about Jesus as we are blessed by him by by God and then this causes John to break out in praise he gets the blessing from God and it causes him to break out in praise and we learn more about what God has done for us in five b and verse six and then we have a behold which are rare in our world, very well, very rare. I, I doubt you've ever said to someone, behold, and then follow that with a sentence. And you can't even imagine the sentence of what, what it would have to be to, to have a behold, right? Behold, that guy cut me off in traffic. There's just, it really isn't anything that it would really have to be something really spectacular for it to be a behold. And um, this reveals some, something about his return. So the, the blessing or greeting about Jesus, the praise about what Jesus has done for us, the behold about his return. And then finally, there is a declaration. It all ends with him finally declaring some truths that help us to understand more of who Christ is and his greatness. And it is, let me just say, a great passage of scripture. So let me read it first. I want to read all five verses without comment. And then we're going to come down and break them down. So this is Revelation 1, 4 through 8. John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is, who was, and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler over the kings of the earth, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and has made us kings and priests, to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. Uh, the reference to the Almighty 
There's only one other time in the Bible that the word the Almighty is used. I'll read that for you here in a while. But there are eight more times that Jesus is referred to as the Almighty in the book of Revelation. And I just wanted to bring that up in the beginning of the study because that's how the book of Revelation works. You might only have one statement that clarifies the Almighty in the Old Testament, but here in Revelation, you have eight of them that refer to Jesus. So the Old Testament passage was referring to Christ. You didn't know that before. And so now there is an unveiling of Jesus Christ. You are beginning to understand more and more to him. All right, let's break down our text. So John to the seven churches which are in Asia. And although there are some who believe this is a different John than John the Apostle, historical evidence is really overwhelming that this was John the Apostle that wrote this. In fact, I said last week that you have John, the, some think it's John called the Elder and some think it's John the Apostle. And scholars are not even sure that those are two different people. They could be the same person. It could be John who was on the island of Patmos after he came off the island of Patmos and went around the churches being John the elder. Uh, there is some question as to whether or not it's the same person, but especially early church history, look within a couple of generations from this book, looked back to John the apostle as being the author. This would be John, the brother of James, who was the first of the apostles martyred, who was in the inner circle with Jesus, who is getting this vision to bring to us, the author of the book of John, the author of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John as well. <clears throat> and then this is to the churches, which uh, today are in modern day Turkey, to the seven churches of Asia. And this is modern day Turkey. Uh, the word seven is used here. And this is gonna be significant throughout the book of Revelation. Seven is used over and over again as a type of completeness. Uh, when you look it up, you, you get the idea of perfection, but it's not perfection like we think someone's perfect because seven is used for them. In other words, the seven churches aren't perfect, right? There's a bunch of criticism that Jesus has of the seven churches, but it is a complete picture of the church. There were more than seven churches in, in Asia Minor, but these seven churches were chosen because it gives us a complete picture. There are seven days in a week. There are seven notes in a scale and kind of on and on. And we see seven used over and over again throughout this. So <clears throat> these seven churches are Ephesus, the loveless church, which is what the first century church became. Smyrna is the persecuted church. Pergama is the compromising church. Thyatira is the corrupt church. Sardis is the dead church. Philadelphia, which everybody thinks they are, us included, is the faithful church. And Laodicea <clears throat> is the lukewarm church. And if everybody thinks they're the faithful church, then we really got to evaluate ourselves that we are not self-deceived because it's easy to become self-deceived, <clears throat> excuse me, and believe that you are the right person. These churches also represent seven types of churches that are in the world today. I don't think it's a stretch for us to be able to say there are corrupt churches today, there are dead churches today, <clears throat> there are loveless churches, there are lukewarm churches, there are uh, persecuted churches, that all of these are types of churches around today. So when we look at this, you want to find yourself in it and maybe try to be a little bit honest in every aspect. Maybe we indeed are the faithful church, but is there any corruptness in us? Is there any deadness in us? Are we moving towards being loveless? 
So there's a lot of things for us to learn as we see these letters taught in the book of Revelation. Now, also, it is remarkable that you can take these seven churches and stretch them out to the length of church history from the early church, first century church, until the church today, and that these seven churches fit like a stencil over it. I don't know that we have any biblical precedent to be able to say the loveless church was from this date to this date. The persecuted church was from this date to this date. But it is remarkable when you put the stencil over it that it fits and it fits effectively. And so we'll look at it like that. Going, we're not quite sure whether God is laying out all of church history here, but it is, in my opinion, remarkable that it does fit. And we will look at that as we make our way through here. So John to the seven churches that are in Asia. This book, the book of Revelation, was written to the church. Seven churches would be the complete church. This book is written to us. That's why it's a good thing for us to study it. And then he says, grace and peace to you, to, uh, grace and peace, grace to you and peace from him who is, who was, and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before the throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth. Let's take a look at this greeting first, grace and peace. Now, these are the words that were used typically for greetings if you were, if you were in the Greek world. And the Greek world was all around the world in those days. Alexander the Great had conquered the world. The Romans were in control now, but Latin was not the world language. Greek was still the world language. Alexander the Great had worked hard, even though he was young, on Hellenizing the world. And that doesn't mean turning the world into hell. It means turning it Greek. So he Hellenized places that he went to to be more and more like Greek. And Greek was the, was the common language. And in Greek, you would greet one another by saying grace. And, and when we think of grace, it is the biblical sense, undeserved favor. You could say that person has a lot of grace and it means they walk really well or they're balanced really well. Not what we're talking about. Oh, we're talking about God giving us undeserved favor. We are saved by grace through faith, not of any works, lest anyone should boast. Grace shows up over a hundred times in the New Testament. Let me give you some examples. Titus 2.11, for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. I use this as a verse that salvation is available for everyone. There are some that believe that salvation is limited to certain individuals, only the elect. I use that verse to say the grace of God has appeared to all men. Ephesians 2, 8, which I just quoted. John 1, 14 and then 16. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. The glory is the only begotten of the father, full of grace and truth. Jesus as a man, God becoming a man was full of grace and truth and of his fullness, we all have received grace to grace. If you've received Christ, then we've, you've received more grace. And I, I can't say more grace than you deserve because grace is what you don't deserve. But the idea that in Christ, we have received grace from grace, that we are, that it is grace from grace in our lives is a pretty amazing statement. As a Christian, I think we are living more of a blessed life than we even can ever begin to understand or comprehend. Now let's take a look at peace. The word peace, 
This is not shalom, but shalom is the greeting in Hebrew today. And it does mean peace. This is a word that means peace in Hebrew. This is the Greek word and it means to join. So it's the idea of dwelling together in unity that you take two people that may be at odds with one another and they join together and now they are at peace. So you make peace when you join together. That's the idea. Romans 5, 1 uses it. It says, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That is, you were at enmity with, against God before you came through Jesus Christ. But when you came through Christ, you now have peace with God. We're also told that we have the peace of God. We have peace with God, which would be enough, but we have the peace of God. And we were singing about it in one of our songs here earlier, just that peace that is beyond understanding, that peace that you have when you shouldn't have it. When circumstances are crazy and your life's going nuts and there's something happening, but you've got peace. I think God gives us that. In fact, listen to what Jesus said in John 14, 27. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Even in the midst of difficult, dark days, even in the midst of the valley of death, he is with you, it says in Psalms 23. So this is the blessing, grace and peace to you from, and it gives us three different persons, from him who was, who is, and who is to come. Now, there's some confusion on that because a little bit later on, Jesus is going to use this term for himself. He will proclaim himself as the one who is, who, who was, who is, and is to come. And so there's this difficulty or conflation with the complexity of God that we find all the way in the Old Testament, chapter one of Genesis, all the way here to the book of Revelation, where we're finding some difficulty. But remember, it is three in one. There is God is one in essence and is three in persons. And we would say that they are all the same, but that God the Father is not God the Son and God the Son is not God the Spirit, but they are one in essence. That's the way theologians have worked out to state it. Analogies are very difficult and don't work very well. God's not like a cherry pie or a pizza or a clover or an egg or a tree or a lot of these other analogies. Water is another one that's been used. And there's a group called modalists. Do you know what a modalist is? So a modalist is a person who believes that God changes to the change to the son and was not the father or the Holy Spirit when he changed to the son. And before that, he was the father, but he wasn't the son. And so God's changing form. That's the mode, the mode that he's in, modalism. He's changing form. So when he shows up at the son, he's only the son. When he shows up at the father, he's only the father. So he changes his form. And they'll use water for that example, that it can be ice, but when it's ice, it's not liquid and it's not vapor. So they'll use that as an example for modalism. The United Pentecostal Church, the Oneness Pentecostal Church, um, T.D. Jakes believes in, in modalism. And so that's kind of the, the, the analogy they use. Now, I actually think it's probably the best and closest analogy to help us to understand the Trinity, it, but not the way they use it. Let me explain what I mean. If you take all the water in the world today 
And think of that as, as just one thing, that all the water in our world on the earth is water. Some of it is frozen, some of it is vapor, and some of it is liquid. It's all water. But the frozen isn't vapor, and the vapor isn't liquid, but they're all water. That, to me, now, punch holes in it, please, all right? God is transcendent, theologians tell us. So they tell us we ought to not even be looking for any kind of an analogy that, that God's going to fit into. Uh, I like it. It may have its holes and God's not water. That's one of the main problems, right? Water is pretty simple compared to the complexity of God. But nevertheless, that's kind of the idea. And so no wonder, I think the Father is referred to here as grace and peace from him who is who was and is to come. When Moses asked the angel of the Lord, who spoke as the angel of the Lord and spoke as God at the same time, that's one of the complexity of God passages. Who shall I say sent you? It used a Hebrew, God used a Hebrew word to be or to exist or I am. That's the word that he used. Tell them that to be or I exist is, is here. And it is a form of Yahweh. And then he said, you remember, tell them I am that I am. And in the Hebrew, it's I am, I am. It's the, this, this word used twice of his existence. And that's the idea of he who was, who is, and is to come. I can't say that. You can't say that. Satan couldn't say that. Michael the archangel couldn't say it. This is unique to God. I was, I am, and I am to come. This is the idea of the one who gives us this blessing. So this grace and peace comes from God the Father, which again, I think is remarkable that God wants us to be blessed. God wants grace in our lives and God wants peace in our lives. And then from the seven spirits who are before the throne, and now all of a sudden we go, who is that? Why is that such a problem? It could just be, and here's what some people believe, that this is seven angels. Angels are spirits. And so this could be seven spirits that are before the throne of God. But the problem is, is that grace and peace are coming from the seven spirits and the Father brings us grace and peace and Jesus Christ brings us grace and peace. So the seven spirits are thrown in here which makes us think he's talking about the Holy Spirit, the other part of the Godhead. But why is he referred to as seven spirits? Well, again, we would think of complexity, right? We would think of, of completeness, that seven represents completeness. So you could talk about seven aspects of the Holy Spirit. Maybe God's giving us through seven spirits. But right away, we get an idea of the kind of difficulties that we have with the book of Revelation. We're going to find things that make us go, uh, not really sure what's being said. So how do you deal with situations like this? How do you go, who is the seven spirits then? Well, you compare. You start looking up the other passages that talk about the seven spirits and see if you can't figure it out. So Revelation 3.1, there's three other places in Revelation where the seven spirits are mentioned. So Revelation 3.1 says, And to the angel of the church of Sardis, 
These things says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works, that you have the name, that you are alive, but you are dead. So the author of that is Jesus. And it says he holds or has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Now, the seven stars, again, notice the seven, right? So now you got seven stars you got to deal with. The seven stars are believed to be the seven pastors of the seven churches. Others believe that churches have angels, which is kind of an, a nice idea. I would like to think that Calvary Tucson has its own angel. Maybe we have to have two because we have two campuses. God's like, I got to give you a couple angels. But there's, uh, there's angels, spirits, and he holds those angels or the pastors that he's holding because the word angel means messenger. And so a pastor is a messenger to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. And so maybe that's it. But Jesus has the seven spirits of God. And that would cause us to not think. Remember, Gabriel said uh, to Zechariah when Zechariah kind of questioned, my wife's pretty old. You sure she's going to have a baby? Gabriel said, I am Gabriel and I stand in the presence of God. So some say there's six other angels like Gabriel. Gabriel stands in the presence of God and that's what he's one of these that's mentioned here. This would speak against that because Jesus says, I have these seven spirits. And remember, it was Jesus who sent the Holy Spirit to minister to the church. Now, Revelation 4, 5 is another reference in Revelation to the seven spirits. It says, and from the throne proceeded, this is chapter four and five are the heavenly visions. It's a, a great section. After you get done with the church, you go to the heavenly visions before you get into the tribulation period, all right? So, and from the throne, this is five, four or five, and from the throne proceeds lightnings and thunders and voices. Seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Now that helps us out even more because in the temple was a candelabra and they had to keep oil in that candelabra. It had seven seven branches and it represented the Holy Spirit. The candelabra represents the Holy Spirit. And if there's seven there, then we get more of an idea of the seven aspects of the Holy Spirit. In fact, and you can look this up later, I won't read you the whole passage because it's lengthy to get what you need to get out of it. But let me just give this to you. You can look it up later. Zechariah 4.2 speaks of seven lamps and Zechariah 4, 6, several verses later, identifies the, the seven lamps as the Holy Spirit. And this is the passage that says, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. And it's identified as a, a seven branched candle abra that is the Holy Spirit. So most of what is spoken of in the book of Revelation is connected to the Old Testament. And we're going to point this out as we make our way through. And so this is just another connection. Once you realize that, you start looking for those Old Testament connections. And this Old Testament connection alone is enough for me to go. The seven spirits are the Holy Spirit and probably the seven aspects of the Spirit. Let me give you the other place it is in Revelation 5, 6. I looked and behold, this is the, the heavenly vision again. I looked and behold in the midst of the throne and the four living creatures and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though he had been slain and having seven horns, which is not something you think of Jesus having, right? You don't think of Jesus having horns. 
There's the number seven again. That's how prevalent it is in the book of Revelation. So a horn in the Bible is the power of an animal and a horn is spoken of as power. And so Jesus having seven horns means he is all powerful. That's the lamb that has been slain is all powerful. The seven horns and the seven spirits of God, which he sent out, oh, excuse me, and having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, he sent out into all the earth. So not only is he all powerful, but he is omnipresent. You can't go anywhere that God isn't. Anywhere you find yourself, God is there. The Holy Spirit is everywhere. So again, that would make us think this is not just seven random angels, but it is the Holy Spirit. Now, Isaiah 11:2 gives us some help. It gives seven aspects of the Holy Spirit. So Isaiah 11:2 says this, the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. Speaking of Jesus, the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom, of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. So the spirit that rests upon Jesus has seven aspects. And so the seven spirits may be a completeness of the Holy Spirit. Now understand, this isn't, this isn't a way we would refer to the Holy Spirit. If, we were write, if I were writing a book to you and if I were writing a book and I wanted to convey to you the work that the Holy Spirit does, I would not use seven spirits. But this book was written at a time that is unlike our time completely. And then it'll communicate the same way. So we need to try to make the best that we can out of it. And this is the way you handle something that you go, what does that mean? You go look at all of the passages you can get, get the information you can, and then walk away with what you think is the best way to look at it. Now, it might be that you go, I don't know. I don't know. There are Calvary Chapel pastors who will say that these are seven angels that have these special jobs by God. I'm not one of those. I think it's the Holy Spirit as the seven spirits speaking of his completeness. I may be wrong. I have been wrong before. Once. Kidding. <laughs> joke. Joke. That's all. Just a joke. All right. So um, then we go to verse five and from Jesus Christ. We know who this is. We don't know. The first two we had to kind of go who was, who is and who is to come. This could be a whole picture of God and then the Holy Spirit after that. And now Jesus Christ. Uh, and then it says the faithful witness. Jesus was a faithful witness to whom God is. The Bible says no one has seen God at any time, but the only begotten son has revealed him to us. The word became flesh and dwelt among us and he revealed God to us. And if you want to know what God, what makes God mad, what God is pleased with, how God responds to sinners, how God responds to, to, to uh, spiritual hypocrisy, then you look at Christ and you get an idea because he is the faithful witness. That is what Jesus is all about, a faithful witness. And then the firstborn from the dead. Now, he, there's another passage in Colossians that really is a creed from the early church. I think it's Colossians 1, 15 through 20. And it's a, a creed from the early church. It's worth memorizing. It says that he is the express image of the invisible God. And it goes on to talk about creation. It's a great passage. It says that he is the firstborn of creation. 
And so some go, well, there it is. Jesus was the first one created. The term firstborn is a legal term that when you are the firstborn, you have the right of inheritance. And so Jesus is the firstborn of creation because he has inherited everything. And then the Bible tells us that we are co-inheritors with him. So the firstborn is connected to, again, inheritance. And this is a study you can go do. You can go do a study to see whether or not that's legit. Just to look at where firstborn is mentioned, look at inheritance and how it connects to it and that we inherit it with them. And that's why we say, the Bible says we have everything. Right, right, we feel like we don't have anything right now. No wonder God says, just be content because you have it all. We have it all because we're a co-inheritance with him. So the firstborn from the dead would be that Christ is the first one to ever rise from the dead and stay risen from the dead. Everybody else died twice. We think about Lazarus. Was he happy or sad to be alive? Was he like Chuck Smith used to say, if I die and you pray for me and I come back to life, I'm going to be angry with you. So I don't want to die again. I'd rather just be up in heaven. I'd just rather be up with Christ. So everybody else who was resurrected had to die again. So they died twice. But Jesus rose from the dead in his incorruptible body, in his immortal body that will be like ours. And so he is the firstborn from the dead, probably making a reference to our inheritance as well. And the ruler over the kings of the earth. So this is the unveiling. And Jesus is in charge of all governments. He's in charge of who's there and who's not. And remember, God raised up men in the Old Testament that were wicked men to bring judgment. God says, I'm going to raise up this king who will bring you into captivity. He, he raises up Nebuchadnezzar for the purpose of bringing Israel into captivity. So God not only raises up righteous men or good leaders or good kings, sometimes he rises up leaders who are judgment on a nation. And, and remember, God was not only concerned with judging Israel. He judged Israel first because he has to judge Israel first because it was, a, it was a theocracy. God was in charge. But God judged Nineveh. God judged other nations in the Old Testament. He gave judgments against the city of Tyre. He gave judgments against other nations. So we have no reason to think now that we're in the New Testament that God's like, well, you know what? I got my hands off everything now. I'm not raising up kings and I'm not judging the world through, through the kings that are given. He is the king of kings on the earth or he's the ruler over all the kings of the earth. They have to answer to him even if they don't believe in him, even if they don't trust in him. They will have to answer to him. The revelation of Jesus. Now, that's the, that's the, the blessing. All of that that we've learned about Jesus is this blessing comes from the one who is, who, uh, one who was, who is, and is to come from the seven spirits before the throne of God and from Jesus Christ and then all the things that were said about him. That's all the blessing. And I just want to say about living the blessed life again, that you and I are blessed. Don't let anybody tell you you're cursed, that you have a family inheritance, you know, that you've inherited a family curse. Christ trumps all of that. You are blessed. I'm not saying that you might not be genetically predisposed to some behavior. I'm not saying that's not true. 
I'm just saying that's not a curse and that Christ will give you the strength to be able to change those behaviors that you might be prone to. Some people are prone to certain behaviors. That's not surprising. We know that, right? Even if we're not psychologists, we know that. And so we, um, we are living a blessed life. I, I heard someone cursing a couple of days ago and using God's name in vain. What was interesting to me is he was asking God to damn something that he wanted to work. And I thought, I wonder if there's any power in asking God to damn something. I wonder if like we're living the blessed life and we'll say, God bless you. And we're asking for prayer. I wonder if using the name of God in vain, which doesn't take using it as a cuss word to do that. But in reality, I like what Ray Comfort says about using God's name in vain. He says, would you use your mother's name in vain? Would you use your mother's name as a curse word? Most often people say, he, he does man on the street interviews. And most people say, no. And then he says, why not? Because I love my mother. And it's like, well, then what are you saying about God when you use his name as a curse word? It should be something precious. And maybe when people are asking God to damn something that they want, it might be a really bad thing. Maybe God's just going, okay. And like, why is things so bad all the time? Well, well. All right, so that's all the blessing. Now, once he's done with the blessing, he breaks into a praise. It's like this blessing that has come to us from God who owes all of these things just causes John to say to him, who loved us and washed us from our sins by his own blood. Now, in this praise, he begins to praise God for what God's done for us. Number one, that God has loved us. This is the word agape. God has chosen to love you. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. When we are believers, God loves us. His grace, his blessings are on our lives. To him who loved us, the Bible says that God demonstrated his love for you, that while you were still a sinner, Christ died for you. He didn't die for you. He did not die for you on your best day. He died for you on your worst day. And he chose to love you despite all the murk and mire that you have ever been involved in. God has chosen for you to be a vessel of his love, that your love, his love would rest upon you. And he washed us with his own blood. He washed us from our sins with his own blood. Now, this is a theological term. And uh, this is a theological point that's very, very important. So we say that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. And that is a completely accurate statement. Jesus went to the cross, bore it up Golgotha, was nailed to that tree and hung and suffered and died so we could be forgiven. So atonement was happening. He became sin who knew no sin that we might become the righteousness of God. God laid upon him the sins of the world while he was on the cross. So that was happening. But the particular death and the part of the death that gives us our forgiveness is the shedding of blood. This is not only said here, it's said in Ephesians. There are a couple other places where the statement is made that we have been cleansed by the blood when Adam and Eve sinned, they, they used fig leaves. However, they attached them together to cover themselves up. I don't know if the fig trees were the same. Uh, uh, it seems that in the ancient world, things were a bit larger. 
So maybe fig tree was completely, you know, able to do it, the job. But God killed an animal and gave them skins to cover them. And that was the first idea that their sin caused death. We know all the Old Testament sacrifices were to cover their sin. But Hebrews tells us that it could not forgive it. Christ's blood forgives us because he's sinless. The Bible says that he, although he was tempted in every way that we are tempted, that he did not sin. There was no sin found in, so he did not sin. So he was sinless and gave a sinless sacrifice in our place so that our sins could be forgiven. Now I bring that up because there's a false teaching that Jesus atoned for us by going to hell and suffering. And you may remember the Carmen song. Do you remember that? You guys remember Carmen? How many people here remember Carmen? I just got to know because I'm always wondering who I'm talking to. It's like, am I bringing up references? People, I'm like, everybody here knows who Carmen is. Look up Carmen. He's awesome. He's got some songs that are great. But he had a song where Jesus is in hell and the demons are holding him down and the demons are beating him up and the demons are pouring on to him everything that, that we should have gotten. That never happened. And the prosperity movement that teaches that Jesus went to hell to suffer hell for you is wrong. He went to hell victorious. And we'll talk at another point. I won't today, I don't have enough time, but I'll talk at another point about what he did there. He preached to spirits. He, he set captives free. We'll talk about that at another point. But it is his blood on the cross. And this is something you're going to find in cults, in false teachings. They like to take atonement and connect it to something else besides his blood. This is very important. So it says, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his blood and has made us kings and priests to his God and Father. We are kings. Now, I'm going to say that this is, is, is male and female as well, although I won't lay out the whole case today. The Bible says that there is no male and female in Christ. And that comes, that's talking about the inheritance in Galatians anyway. It's in the context of our inheritance that there's no male and female. So in other words, you don't have to be the firstborn son to be an inheritance with Christ. It's for male and female, it's for everybody. But we're all called his sons by which we're given the spirit, by which we cry out, Abba, Father, and we're sons because sons inherited. And then he says, there's no male and female. So I think that the kings here is royalty. When God created Adam and Eve, he gave them dominion over the earth. That's a position of, of ruling. He wanted mankind to rule with him. And when we come to Christ, we are now royalty. We are, we are kings. And I think, again, this is for men and women. And we are priests. Now, a priest in the Old Testament had two, two things he was supposed to do. One, he was a mediator between God and man. Men would bring the sacrifice to him. He would take the sacrifice and give it and, and make the sacrifice for them. So priests today in the Catholic Church and some other churches are not a go-between. Even though Catholics may believe that, they have a genuine faith in Christ, there is not a man standing in between them and Christ. They can go boldly to the throne. In fact, if, if a Catholic is a genuine believer, they are a priest. And priests gave sacrifices. And we're called in Romans 12, 1 and 2 to give ourselves as a living sacrifice to God. And so we are a kingdom of priests. Again, kingdom, we're royalty, and we are priests because there's one mediator between us and God, and that is the man, Jesus Christ. 
He's the only mediator. He's the one that has opened the way for us to be able to go before him so that you and I are kings and priests to his God forever, it says. Now, some people find a problem with Jesus calling the Father his God, but on earth he did that as well. He called the Father his God. Doesn't mean he's not God. Um, Hebrews 1 says, God thy God has anointed thee. That's, and that's a quote from the Old Testament that God anoints God, his son. So uh, then in, in the rest of verse, what is this? Verse five, to him be the glory and dominion forever and ever, amen. There's a lot more in that little verse than what it looks like as well. To him be the glory and dominion. In Daniel 7, 13 and 14, there is a vision of the son of man. Jesus owned this when he stood in front of Caiaphas who was the high priest. And Caiaphas said, are you the son of God? And Jesus said, yes, I am the son of God. You said it is what he said. But he said, but from here on out, you will see the son of man coming in the clouds with glory and dominion and a kingdom. And Caiaphas tore his clothes and said, what further need do we have of a trial? This is blasphemy. Why? Because of Daniel 7. This is the Old Testament. And first of all, it talks about seeing thrones that there are thrones set up and the Ancient of Days is on the thrones. So with the Ancient of Days is the Father. And then it says this, Daniel 7, 13. I was watching in the night vision and behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. We're gonna get that in a few, uh, in a few moments as well. He came to the Ancient of Days and they brought him near before him. And he, this is the Son of Man who came on the clouds. Sound like anybody? To him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, languages shall serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom is the one which shall not be destroyed. So Revelation is referring back to Daniel 7. And this is the kind of thing that we're going to see as we make our way completely through. It's like we're getting the completion the unveiling of what these verses were meaning back in the Old Testament. So right after this statement, right after to him be dominion uh, forever and ever, amen. What's the very next thing he says? Behold. Now he comes to this, to this behold moment. He is coming in the clouds. So why do you think he said that? Because John's statement to him be glory and dominion forever and ever made him think of Daniel 7, 13 and 14. And so he says, behold, he's coming in the clouds because it said in Daniel, he's coming in the clouds. Behold, he is coming in the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. This idea of the world mourning when Jesus shows up is a common one. We see it a lot that this has to be something supernatural. Every eye will see him when he returns, no matter where on the earth you are. And even those who pierced him who have died and they are able to see him return. So this is something supernatural taking place here. And then finally, he ends with a declaration. And this is a great declaration. I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am the A and the Z, but in Greek. But since it's Greek, it's Alpha and Omega. And it sounds a whole lot better than A to Z. He's the beginning and the end. He's the first and the last. I am the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord. And then this is Jesus speaking now. And we know that 
from what's to come next week. You can go back and read the context later. Says the Lord, who is, who was, and who is to come. That's the same line of the first person that the blessing comes from in verse four. Jesus is the one who was, who is, and is to come. He'll reiterate it by saying, I was alive, I died, and I am alive. Then he says, the Almighty. This is a reference to God, the Almighty. And again, we find it several times as we continue to look at the book of Revelation, eight times, I think, and then one time in the Old Testament. Matthew, let me read you just a few verses here. We're gonna wrap things up. Matthew 19, 26 says, but Jesus looked at them and said to them, with men, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. Jesus said, I am the Almighty. The Almighty means nothing is impossible for him. We have as our Lord and Savior, a God that everything is possible. Jeremiah 32, 27 says, Behold, I am the Lord God, the God of all flesh. Is there anything too hard for me? Revelation 4, 8 says, The four living creatures, which having six wings, were full of eyes all around within them, and they do not rest day and night singing, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was, who is, and who is to come. Now, this may be a reference to the Godhead completely. Since Jesus says, I am the Almighty, it might be a reference to Jesus by himself. And then Genesis 17, 1, this is way back in the first book of the Bible, right? When Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abraham and said to him, I am Almighty God. This is the reference in the Old Testament. In the very beginning, the readers of Revelation, when it was delivered to them, the very first ones would have known this. They would have known it. They would have made the connection. So he says to him, I am almighty God, walk before me and be blameless. And so we are serving and following almighty God. Three quick things in closing, because I'm running out of time. True grace and peace comes from God alone. And mankind tries to find it in, all other, in, in a bunch of other ways, but it's only through a relationship with him that you can find true grace and peace. You might think you can do it by getting rich. You might think you may do it by love. You may think you can do it by pleasure. You may think you can do it by putting things around you. But the book of Ecclesiastes was written to tell us that all of those things are vanity. They, they do nothing for us. True grace and peace, which we need comes from, from God alone. Number two, Jesus is the faithful witness. All kinds of other people will try to get an idea of what God is like. You don't have to go that far. You just have to study the gospels and you see the way Jesus responded and reacted. You see what made him mad. You see what he was blessed by. You see the way that he encouraged faith among Gentiles. You know that God is pleased with faith among Gentiles. You know that God is pleased with people with sincerity and honesty and a lack of hypocrisy. You know that God had compassion on sinners because God sees sinners as if they're trapped and chained by sin because that's what Jesus talked about, that he came to set sinners free. He didn't condemn people that were living sinful lifestyles, but he set them free from the bondage of that sin. And finally, we've been made kings and priests. So let's live like it. 
Let's, let's live like we're kings and priests, like we're, like we're royalty. My dad would say to me, my dad passed away when I was 14, but he would say to me, you're a furrow, live like it. Now, I had no idea what that meant. I'm a furrow, I'm a, I plowed into the ground. I'm a furrow, what does that mean? I live like it. How am I going to live like that? What are, you, what are you talking about? But we are kings and we are priests of the living almighty God who has loved us and washed our sins away in his blood. We, we of all people ought to live our lives as kings and priests because you are, each one of you. Stand with me, would you? And let's pray. Father, thank you for all the revelation that we have received so far just through eight verses in the book of Revelation and how there's so much more to come. Lord, we thank you that we can look into these passages and really get a fullness of who you are and what you are all about. And we pray that you would bless the rest of our studies throughout this book, <clears throat> that we would continue to see the unveiling of Christ and understand the pictures that you're trying to give us. And Lord, as we look at the seven spirits that we believe represents the Holy Spirit, may we see those seven aspects of the Holy Spirit and see them working in our lives. And we thank you for this. In the name of Jesus, we pray, amen.